0: Corinthians chapter 12 working through the various gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, last week I had handed out a chart, and I'll hand it out again because I've made adjustments to it based on our discussions and our teaching. Um, let's just call it a living document. Uh, um, Uh, It's because, you know, the more you get into something, the more you realize, you know, we can make improvements here. And, of course, some people accidentally threw theirs away. Uh, (laughs) So they really want another copy. And, by the way, if you ever have that happen, you can always email me, and I can email you the document because I create these on my system, and I can email them to you if that ever happens. Or, later on, I upload them onto the InterAltra website so that Uh, You can both listen to it and also get the handouts if they're uh, appropriate. Last week when we first started going through the chart, I did some uh, preamble of of reiterating our study of what are the gifts in general. The more I read, the more I talk, and Lisa can attest to the number of books that I have on this topic. There are two piles approximately this tall. So there's about 24 different books. And it's overwhelming to try to grasp it all. And yet there are very, every once in a while something pops up and I go, "Ooh, the class, I think the class would uh, appreciate or gain something by this new look at something. So I looked again at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 7, where it reads, The purpose of the gifts is that to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Last week I focused on the word the common good. This week, it's the word manifestation. That's an unusual word. It's not a typical word. And so I start thinking about its uh, etymology and all of that. You think of a manifest could be a record. You know, you write it down. It's a manifest. And then there's a manifesto. The communist manifesto. Or some other manifesto. Which is an expression. Of an opinion or a position paper. I guess you could say. But then you have manifestation here. And the, the Greek word. Means to make visible or make clear. It is a. In fact, the word that is used right here is uh, phanerosis, which is the only time in the New Testament the word is used, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to look at it a little more carefully. It comes from the Greek word "phaneroo," which means appear. So in 1 John 3.2, you have God appearing. At the end times, The God, God will appear, will manifest or manifestation. He will appear. So you look at this sentence and you try to then put other English words in its place to give a better clarity. To each is given the visibility or the clarity or the expression of the Spirit. This indicates even more so, I think, the purpose behind the spiritual gifts. It's not Necessarily for our own good. It's not just for us. It's for everyone. It's for the purpose of the body of Christ. Um, Simon Kistemaker says, It signifies an action that, reveal, that re- reveals the presence of the Spirit. It evidence in the church. So you go through all these various gifts and we can talk about them and we tend to forget that the gifts of the Spirit is a gift. It's a special uh, manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian for the common good. But at the same time, it doesn't mean they cannot benefit the individual. In fact, they probably do. It benefits the individual but that's not its ultimate goal and that's where i think much of the aberration of the gifts of the spirit is that people then seek out the gifts that they think will be good for themselves ooh i want to do that i want to be i want that well that's coveting that's not of the spirit And so this idea to seek out another gift than the one that you have, or the one you think you have, it's wrong thinking. And I just want to bring that out. Because in 1 Corinthians 14.26, it says, Let all things be done for building up. That's at the conclusion of this whole conversation about prophecy in the tongues in chapter 14. So there is a, yes, there is personal benefit, but there is the overall common good that's really important. The other thing that I came across and I had passed over it and I thought I need to come back to it because it's fascinating. I don't know if it has any grand meaning but it is fascinating. Here. Oh, you want to go ahead and do this for me? Thanks. Sure. Um, I have a handout here of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 8 through 10. This particular... Um, I guess you want to call it investigation of the Greek language. So put on your Greek pants because we're going to be studying what the Greek says behind the English. So the text reads in English, and I'll, I'll then look at the chart for you. It reads, To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between Spirits. And to another, <coughs> various kinds of tongues. One for me, Yeah, you need to have one too. Here go. So notice the common word, another. It's used multiple times. In the Greek language, there are two words for another. And we can't see it in English. So you see at the top of my handout here it says the two greek words are alas which means another of the same kind and heteros think heterosexual another of a different kind but when you get into the greek text itself You can actually read the passage, and you can follow the chart, and I'm going to read it in the English using the Greek word for another. Chapter, verse 8 is, To one is given through the Spirit the words of wisdom, to word of wisdom, and alas, the utterance of knowledge according to the Spirit. So it's like one sentence. He's given the word of wisdom and another of the same kind, word of knowledge. Heteros, faith, another of a different kind, different from word of knowledge and different from word of wisdom. Of the same spirit, alas, gifts of healing by the one spirit. Alas, the working of miracles. Alas, prophecy. Prophecy alas, the ability to distinguish between spirits. And then right in the middle of the English sentence where there's a comma in English hits heteros, various kinds of tongues. Alas, interpretation of tongues. Isn't that fascinating? Now, a lot of the Greek scholars will say, is there a big deal between alas and heteros? Not really. It's like um, a colloquialism. People will use Even in English, we will use a similar word that means basically the same thing. But this seems really intentional because it's all in the same sentence and repeated. So was Paul trying to group the gifts into like kindedness I can't say yes to that. I can't say no to that. I just found it absolutely fascinating when you dig into the Greek behind the English, when we're trying to unravel what are the meaning of the gifts, and you have Paul himself writing through the inspiration of the Spirit, talking about different kind and same kind. Now, I'm not going to give you any grand conclusion. I just want you to see it and find that for your own uh, <clears throat> Tickles and grins, as they might say. Okay, now we get into the chart. Oh, we're going to do the handout thing here again. Here we go. All right. This particular chart, uh, we did all of page one last week, um, and you can throw away last week's handout. <laughs> I mean, you really don't need it because this one trumps the other one. Um, I made a lot of changes to it, a lot of changes, a lot of additions. And partly because I just felt it was um, not completely put all together. Did you not get one? Oh, you got one, good, okay. So there's no extras? All right, I timed it. Did it just right, wow, that's unique. and if you notice on page one, at the very top, I give uh, credit to Stan Jantz for the five sections that are organized here. And uh, I sent the, this chart to Stan this last week, just let you know that you inspired me. And I put, you know, spent a number of hours putting this chart together. And he goes, "This is amazing." Starting next week, today, I'm teaching on my book, Fire and Wind at my own church in Huntington Beach, California. And when we get to the spiritual gifts section, this will be my handout, so thank you. I don't have to do the work. (laughs) It was pretty pretty funny. But anyway, um, we obviously went through the first ones here, the words of wisdom, words of knowledge, and their similarities. Uh, one little side note in that uh, on word of knowledge, word of wisdom in the first list in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 he does not list teaching but he lists words of knowledge and words of wisdom in the other three lists the latter half of chapter 12 Romans 12 Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, he lists teaching but does not list words of knowledge, words of wisdom. So even last week when we were discussing about the differences between the two, we said one was most likely very related to the concept of teaching. So that's just another side note that I came came across. Another thing that has bugged me all week (coughs) I talked with Lisa about this last night, is the gift of miracles. I don't feel I really expressed it very well, because I'm not quite sure what that is. If you look at some of these gifts, I mean they're all miraculous, there's no other way to come by it. So what is the, not what is a miracle, that isn't my question. What is the gift of miracles? What does that mean? How is that expressed? And Lisa brought up an interesting uh, uh, thought, is that when the apostles were traveling around, they would have performed various signs and wonders and miracles. They might not necessarily have been healing. Or prophecy, or any of these others. They were things like exorcism. There were other, I can't remember, we're talking about a couple of them. I can't remember. Paul and the snake. Oh, Paul, Paul with and the snake. and yeah. yeah, not being bitten by the snake. You know, things of this nature, is were those the gift of miracles? Possibly, in fact, likely. But there's no real discussion other than just the listing. And as we, you know, added the... Um, The phrase from W.A. Criswell in that chart, a temporary suspension of the laws that govern this world as we commonly observe them. And I just think that is the best definition of a miracle that we can come up with. But what is the gift of miracles? So you might say, well, I have the gift of miracles. Really? (laughs) The temptation for me to say to you is, show me <laughs> uh, and so you got if we have to be careful when we discuss all of these various things because we're not necessarily sure or i'm not necessarily confident that we know exactly how that is going to be expressed we did we did talk about uh the gift of healings um, And I want to make sure I reiterate that this is not a discussion of whether God can heal. There is no doubt about that. None whatsoever. Healing is a power of God. Period. What we're talking about are the gifts of healing. Where that Power, that ability that gift is embodied in an individual who are then able to express that gift in the context of the body of Christ what does that look like oh, you know I don't know you know I told you some of my background you have the various famous TV preachers that say put your hand on the television and I'll heal you through the screens like yeah uh, you know I'm not so sure I don't want to doubt God's power, but really. Um, so we just we have to be careful when we t- discuss that uh, and talk about it. If you want to, by the way, if you want to chime in at any point, please do, because <laughs> I'm up here all alone <laughs> on these <laughs> on these topics. Um, so let's go. Let's keep moving on the uh, the chart so we can look at all of all of these possibly. And if we don't finish in the day, we'll pick them up next week anyway. So next comes in the chart, page two, the discipling gifts or the power to instruct. And this is artificial, and that is what the organization that Stan came up with, the artificial um, organization is actually, I think, very helpful because it helps us see them all kind of in their, you know, in their context. But it starts with apostleship. You know, of all the gifts of the Spirit, this is the one that's least talked about. People say, oh, I have the word of knowledge. Oh, I have the word of wisdom. Or, I have prophecy. Or, I have tongues. Or, I have this. Or No one walks around saying, I have the gift of apostleship. We all look at that person and go, really? So you're Paul? Well, no, that isn't necessarily what it means, but is it what it means. It is a, it's in the list of the gifts of the Spirit inspired by the Holy Spirit through Paul to us today. So we have to look at it and say, well, what is the definition of apostleship? As I write right here, the Greek word apostolos means a messenger. There's someone who is sent forth. Very simple, like an angel. That's someone who is sent out, a messenger. The narrow definition, and this is the definition that is used frequently to define what is an apostle, the title apostle in the New Testament, meaning the 12 apostles and Paul, and possibly Barnabas, although he's not indicated as an apostle. One who have, ones who have seen the risen Christ and are commissioned by him, which suggests that once those people died out, there were no more Apostles, because there couldn't be anybody who had seen the risen Christ, at least for the way we understand it in Scripture. Now that's the narrow definition. There's a broader definition that's been used a little more commonly in some circles that they consider the role of the missionary to be a a part of the apostolic ministry. Now, do you guys agree or disagree? I mean, I'm curious what you would think. Uh, Granted, I've had time to think about this for a few weeks. but
1: Can we hear from a missionary?
0: Yeah, why don't we hear from a missionary? No no
1: pressure, no pressure. No
0: pressure at all. (laughs) I mean, this is an interesting question. I mean, does the gift of apostleship apply to the sent forth ones?
2: I think in a minor sense. In a minor sense. It frequently does, uh, especially... We call it church planting spearhead. Uh, I think Jim, Pastor Jim's dad did that in France. That's the uh-huh. situation I'm familiar with. He and his brother Rod did that in France. They were the first ones to go in there and really start planting new churches. Uh-huh. Uh, so in that sense, yes. Now, I have run into a lot of teaching about apostleship over the last few years among certain groups, no, not necessarily even charismatics. Uh-huh. They push this. But they begin leaking over into the the biblical narrow definition of yes, they're like missionaries, but they also claim certain authority, which Uh, is.
0: Because, see, good point. The idea of apostleship has implicit in it authority. But how
2: much?
0: But how much? It's not defined in Scripture. Except for the fact that Paul says, Well, I am an apostle authoritatively, and he spends a great deal of time in his letters defending his apostleship.
1: Yeah. And as a contrast, think of the Mormon church, they have apostles. Yeah. So that, you know, I mean, that's an, an interpretation.
0: It's an interpretation there, You're, you know, you, know, you, you kind of wonder and it, is that really even defined for them based on this?
1: Yeah, but it should make you think, gee whiz, they claim they have apostles, and. Typically we know that Of course,
0: I, have, I had an old boss who uh, I was asking because he would given me a promotion, but my business card didn't change, and then he, I said, well, shouldn't my title be different? And he said, titles are cheap, you can make them up. So if you want a highfalutin title, I'll give you one, you know, Grand Poobah, you know, fine.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: doesn't mean you're going to get paid more, and I went, oh, got it, you know, but I was thinking that the title... Gave authority.
3: Well, it's, it's like Tom indicated what—not uh, just the charismatic church, but if you go back to that, a lot of charismatic circles they have apostles, apostles so and so, female or male, and that's it's true. the idea that it's given—it's a title that has it has to do with that authority and that's that group. But it's interesting to hear that you said that's leaking out into. Various other did I hear that question? Various other
2: Yeah, because what I've seen is I think like like Jim's dad would be a valid, apostle in a minor sense. But some people say maybe church planters, but then they claim like they have this direct apostolic Uh, authoritative connection with God and I think that's more restricted to the Well and
0: even there you have I hear the phraseology you need to have an apostolic ministry. They name their ministries. This is an apostolic ministry. Again, giving it that, that word of authority via that phraseology. And yes, I get book proposals from, you know, my name, I'm Apostle Sarah. Really? Really. <laughs> you know, it just means their church has laid hands on them, commissioned them, and then given them a title of Apostle. And then they use that as a position of authority for what they have to say. And you just, now I'm just, again, we're just exploring this because we have to come back and separate the title from the gift. And what is the gift of apostleship? Because Paul introduces at the very beginning, he says, these are the spirituals. The word gifts isn't in the, in the Greek text. He doesn't say, this is my list of the spiritual gifts. It so says, this is my list of the spirituals. So it has a spirit manifestation. So if there's a gift of apostleship, it has a manifestation of some sort of the spirit of God. What is that? I don't know. You have some, like I have on my, third, my fourth column over there, some say that this gift or this office no longer exists. And that's a quote from uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, page 1031. I looked it up. I wanted to see what he had to say. I actually looked in probably a dozen of my Systematic Theologies to see. Most of them just avoid the topic for, with, for definition because they're talking about the larger work of the Holy Spirit. But when you start getting down to it, you have to say, well, how do we define these words?
3: Well, there, it also seems to me that there would be a. There's that encounter with the risen Christ. Because what that does with the disciples and the apostles, it totally eliminates Judas. Yes. Because everything else he's a part of. But that one area. So there's something. <clears throat> and of course, a born again experience is encounter with Jesus Christ. But there. That's essentially Uh
0: something there. Ephesians 2, verse 20 reads that the church is built on prophets and apostles. Same word. So, and then Paul writes about apostles here in the gifts. He used the same word later in talking about the church being built on prophets and apostles. Yes, so Steve, what I find interesting uh, in this whole discussion is that we've been praying for Muslims, and in several instances we hear of Muslims having a vision. Yes. Uh, which I'm not sure if that's the same thing as saying seen. Well, in that happened to Paul. That, that happened to Paul. But Paul had this had an experience. But they don't consider themselves apostles. No, and I do think that we could separate out that you could ask the question: Was it was it a vision of Christ, or did Christ actually appear to Paul? There's a difference. The difference between a dream and a vision versus that Damascus Road experience. So I, I'm not, and no, they do not call themselves apostles because of that.
3: I think um, the danger is in seizing the title. Yes, I mean, absolutely. If if a missionary really is an apostle, you'll find out later. And, oh, I was, an apo- I, was, I was an apostle. That's great. But if you're like assume it, then it's, it,
2: that's where this is wrong. Today. And that's exactly what Tom was saying, is that they're
0: taking the beauty of the idea that a sent out one is a called person to bring the gospel. <laughs> they are called out. They are sent out but then to give them title authority of the office of apostle, then you have to start wondering, well, then who's in charge? Because if they can set up their own hierarchy and at the top is their apostle, well, then who, who, who controls that guy? Yeah.
1: Is there a correlation between prophet Old Testament, apostle New Testament, Uh, If you say there were a finite number of prophets in the Old Testament, in other words, not everyone who was a believer in Yahweh was a prophet. The prophets were specifically called to do a specific job. And if there's a correlation, what kind of limit, you know, it's not like, again, that gets you into, again, you get into these cult-like practices where Yeah, I'm a a prophet Mm -hmm. of the the new gospel, and I can prophesy. You know what I mean? That's a really good
0: point, and yet at the same time, when we look at the gift of prophecy, Mm -hmm. in two of the lists, it's the gift of prophecy, and in two of the lists, it is just listed as prophet, Mm -hmm. not prophecy. So you have a title and an action, even in Paul's lists. So, I'm not sure that the correlation fits here between old and new. Mm -hmm. Um, It could, but I'm not quite sure. Yes, Carl. I I was just uh, going to, I know in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, they have a very strong school system. Yes. And those teachers believe that they are called by God to be teachers. Yes. And I'm wondering if that same principle applies to, to missionaries. Very likely. You feel, they called by God to do that? Well, I would say, Tom, you felt called by God to be a missionary. There was, it was, there was no question.
2: Confirmed by other people.
0: Confirmed by other people. You just felt called to be sent out. And that is a gift. I mean, seriously, I one. not there's a, a, it's not a famous song, but Scott Wesley Brown had, had a song. that was called, Lord, please don't send me to China. <laughs> and pretty much the lyrics were, be careful what you pray for. Because God might say, oh, really? <laughs> Guess where you're going? You know, and suddenly you're being sent to where you won't, don't want to go. Because his whole point of his song was, say, don't try to limit God's movement. But yeah, there is a called sense. I, this is a, a this is great discussion, by the way we're talking about a word that i can't define i have no uh, pronouncement here of exactly what it means but i think it's important in our discussion that the next time you hear it or someone invokes it then you can say what do you mean by that you don't confront them and say you're wrong you confront them and say what do you mean when you're defining (coughs) That you are an apostle. How do you define that? What does that mean for you? Well, I've been, you know, blessed. When, well, but let's look at the scripture, and then you kind of go back back that way. It becomes a healthy discussion, so that we don't spill into, let's call it inadvertent heresy. Because I don't say that any of these people would be intentionally trying to gl- grab that is that they're being taught that it's okay to do so. Let's go to the next one. It's interesting. It's only mentioned once. And I have in the right, the left-hand column, pastor, shepherd. Because the Greek word, depending on your translation, in, in Ephesians 4, you'll see the word pastor, or you'll see the word shepherd. Depends on your translation. The Greek word that's actually there is poimen, you see that over in the fourth column. And that means shepherd. The word pastor is not used. The word pastor, as again I have in my column here for you, comes from the Latin pascare, which means to feed. And it later turned into Middle English, then turned into the word pastor and came out of England. You don't find the word pastor in the Greek like this, It means what it means. It's a shepherd. There is someone who are guiding the flock. They are overseeing. And this metaphor is all through the, the Old Testament. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I mean, you just got all of that, that picture. <clears throat> and even Jesus used a lot of that, um, uh, that language in talking about his sheep and the, the parable of the lost sheep and all of those other things that come in here. But it's very easy to, to get the picture. It is a gift. I've said this before in previous classes, but uh, I'll say it again, is that, you know, when you're in a Bible major in college, you pretty much look at what your career path is gonna be And if you're in a Southern Baptist college, like I was, and you are in the Bible department, most likely you're going to be a pastor. That's your career path. And so, you know, I'm thinking, well, maybe that's where I'm headed, but I'm not so sure. And it didn't feel right. And then I read um, Charles Spurgeon's book, Lectures to My Students. I think it's chapter two, is about the call to be a pastor. And it was crystal clear. He, he held, holds no punches in whatever he said, writes and, and speak, spoke anyway. But he basically says the only way you can be a pastor is if you can do nothing else. In other words, it has to be such a passion, such a calling, that this is where you're headed. And you can't stop God's movement in that. It's just going to, it's inexorable. But if you don't have that, then you're probably not called to be a pastor. And I just went, I'm not called to be a pastor. This isn't isn't my career path. And it kind of threw me for a month or so. I was just like, well, what does that mean? Of course, then I realized, well, maybe it's more in the teaching area. And so that was when Lisa and I had talked about it that You know, we'd go to seminary and I'd get my degree in theology and teach systematic theology. She'd get her degree in Old Testament and teach Old Testament. And, you know, life changed. And, uh, you know, other things occurred. But here, that moment of what is the call to be a pastor, the challenge was is that there were others in the pastoral ministry section of the school. I would never go to their church these guys they shouldn't have been there but they felt like this is where they were going and many of them did not have any of those gifts they did not have that they just for for a couple of them they had failed at so many other things this was the easy degree (laughs) so it was because they couldn't do anything else but not for the right reasons (laughs) I can't. I said
3: they flunked down most of those Oh, classes. yeah, they, they were, were
0: DNF D, D students in Bible. Not a good thing if you're going to be a pastor of a church. But anyway. So, when we come to this, we have all had experience with a variety of pastors, most likely, in your life. And you know when you're dealing with someone who has that gift, there's just something unique about their ability to shepherd and give vision, and yet care. Firm direction, yet freedom. This, the idea of the shepherd's crook, it wasn't a spear to poke them with a cattle prod. It was a, oh, come on Sally, move over here. Stop getting to the edge of the cliff. You know, you know better. It's like, okay, I'm sorry. You know, it's this, rather than a whip or some other, you know, aggressive, it's a shepherding, it's a nurturing, and a guidance. That's all there. Anyway, that's my thoughts on the pastor. The next is teaching. And it's listed in three places, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians 12, and in Ephesians. This is the Greek word, didaskalos. And that word is used of Jesus all through the Gospels. It is the Greek word for the Hebrew word, rabbi. It is the Greek word for the Hebrew word, rabbonai. So pretty much any time you see the word teaching or teacher, you can actually think of the word rabbi. In that respect, you know, we try not to put it in, use that word, because it has such very strong Jewish connections. But that's really what it is. It's someone who has that ability to understand and then instruct others about the truths found in scripture. Um, Second Timothy 2.2, it reads, when you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That was Paul's instruction to Timothy. This idea of teaching. Paul himself, Paul calls himself didaskalos. In 1 Timothy 2.7 and 2 Timothy 1.11. He is, I am a didaskalos. And that's what he was. He was a teacher. Um, let's see, I've got one other verse here. I'll read this. This is Acts 13, 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And remember we had over in Ephesians where the church was built on prophets and teachers. These were those that were entrusted with the ability to instruct the others in the body on the knowledge of what was in scripture or what they had understood. It's also one of the scariest things is that admonition about teachers that they will be held to a higher standard. Um, I don't like that verse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I come here every Sunday and I'm thinking, I have been entrusted, you have entrusted me with your understandings. Yeah, you can disagree with me and that's great. And that's fine you know this but the idea is that you have entrusted me with that responsibility and I don't take it lightly. Next, exhortation or encouragement. Now when I originally did this chart I just had the word encouragement that's why you throw away last week's chart because the Greek word here is paracalone paracolone means in exhortation. It's the same word that you find in Romans chapter 12, which is right before he has his list of gifts. He writes, I paracolone you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God. I appeal to you, or I urge you. That's the word exhortation. Encouragement and exhortation in English have different meanings. And yet, our English translators tend to blur them regularly. Even over in um, Acts 15.32, find it here, I'll read it to you in the ESV. Acts 15.32 reads, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. The word there is parakaleo, which means exhortation. And yet the ESV has it, those who are themselves prophets encouraged rather than exhorted and strengthened. So even in English we blur them. So I come back to this definition, I'm not sure my definition as well I have it written here is broad enough. Because my definition fits encouragement more than it does exhortation, or does it? So you see my challenge. I mean, parakaleon is used 109 times. Exhortation is used 109 times in the New Testament. The Greek word parakalesis, encouragement, is used only 29 times. So just by virtue of its usage, the idea of exhortation is predominantly more common in this particular word so we come back to what is our study our study is that is the gift so there are people who have the gift of encouragement in fact it often is uh, used exhortation is very rarely used in the various gifts or even the spiritual gift tests they come back to the idea of encouragement and we. If you don't have someone in your life who can give you that word of encouragement, you need one. You need somebody. And you know these people. You've run into them. Every time you talk to them, you come away feeling, wow, I think I can actually survive today. That's amazing. All they did was say one word to me. That is a gift. That gift of encouragement. But at the same time, Exhortation is a much stronger word where you come to somebody and you appeal to them saying, my friend, please, look at what you're doing. Now that's exhortation, but that's also encouragement.
3: Exhortation seems to carry <coughs> a more authoritative mm-hmm. um, tone to mm-hmm. it, a position, a just take a, um, a workplace, take it out of the church context. Mm-hmm. You could your fellow employees or somebody lower on the scale, whatever, could be encouraging. But your boss would exert, knowing you, knowing you can meet a higher challenge, they exhort you. There's there's just something about a little bit of a, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily a hierarchy, but maybe at that point, if you have the gift of or exhortation, then. There is that authority given by the Spirit to mm-hmm. do that. But it's a slight thing. It's, 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 it's very subtle. subtle.
0: It's more formal. It's, it's very subtle. I think of and this is again, out of the church world, but I think in the secular world, a coach. A coach can say, get along saying, hey, you know, you're doing great. Good job. Even though they didn't do a great job, but, you know, they tried their best. But then they get alongside somebody and they shout out saying, you can do better. I know you. Come on. It's kind of the same thing, but it's a very different tone in what it has expressed. In the church. This is why, you know, the question of whether or not people have multiple gifts. I think, Yeah sometimes the shepherd is the exhorter. They're the ones who can really come alongside someone and exhort them but at the same time they're also the one who can come inside and encourage them in that same way. Is that clear or yeah?
1: I have wonder if the word challenge helps to express a little bit better what Lisa was just saying mm-hmm. to challenge somebody that's a little bit more than just pat on the back and Make them Feel good. There's a bit of a stretching them.
0: It's a synonym. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a synonym. It's just not the Greek word we're dealing with. Yeah. So, so for it, but or in English the gift you, of it,
1: it has a little bit more of in English a little bit more of a a sense that you're not just making them feel good about themselves, mm-hmm. but you're showing them where they need to get to. That
0: they're not there yet. I, I, you know, you're, you're right. And the thing is about encouragement, it can slide into some of the other gifts that we have below this in the next chart. See, the idea of here, if we group these according to this chart, this is the section on the power to instruct. Exhortation is instruction. It has, a, it has that weight to it anyway. And I know we're playing semantics here but I think it's an important thing to realize where the text is leading us and to recognize it when it comes. All right, next is the gift of evangelism. Now, my definition that I came up with here is the gift to proclaim the gospel to those who have not heard it before or heretofore have been unreceptive. This is not just for the famous like Billy Graham, but for anyone with this gift to spread the good news with fervor and conviction And then I added, just last night, I wrote in my margin, to communicate with persuasiveness. It's only listed in Ephesians 4. And it uses the word evangelistas, which is not evangelizo. And evangelistas, it's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. So you've got another one of these unique Um, word forms but evangelizo we obviously we translate as preaching the gospel so i actually asked the question in that fourth column is this a gift of preaching i mean what is preaching it's you know it's expressing the gospel so is that the gift of evangelism Ah, now I'm starting to tie ourselves in knots with our wordplay here. Any of us who ever heard Billy Graham, there is no question he had this gift. Absolutely unassailable. He would just start talking and you go, I've heard all this before, but... The way he said it, it was mesmerizing. What was it about him? It wasn't about him, that's the point. It was the Holy Spirit through him that allowed him to communicate the gospel in such a way that thousands of people would react. One of the uh, uh, writers um, in this discussion He went to one of Billy Graham's last crusades. I think he was 90. He could barely even stand up. He was so debilitated at that point. And they said his voice was weak. He was not the Billy Graham of the 60s or 70s. It was this very um, elderly man just trying to just speak the word of God. He goes... 2,000 people responded to him. It was not Billy Graham talking. It was amazing. He said, I just sat there going, well, there's the gift of evangelism right there, folks. It was this, the the weight of what was being said and how it was said. And you want to go, well, I'm not Billy Graham.
2: <clears throat>
0: well, is." Oh, I love it when the headlines are always a- appropriate for our uh, our discussions. A month ago, Pope Francis said to a group of high schoolers that they should never seek to convert unbelievers. Anyone who proselytizes is not a disciple of Jesus, and I'm quoting him. in speaking of having Jewish and Muslim friends to these high schoolers, he says, we're all the same. We're all children of God. We are not in the time of the Crusades. I'm quoting here. I'm not making any of this up. In front of an unbeliever, the last thing I have to do is to try to convince him, never, but listen, never, never bring the gospel by proselytizing. The church does not grow by proselytism. What in the world that is so wrong-headed? In other words, shut up. And if they're going to come to Jesus, just love them into the kingdom. Make, don't, don't challenge them with the gospel. Because that's proselytizing. That's confronting them. That's challenging them. So there's a new book coming out next uh, next month or two, by Jordan Easley and Ernest Easley, and they wrote an article which was published on January 24th. Do the math, it was Friday. This article was published Friday, and I'm studying this thing, and the article is called Is Evangelism on Its Deathbed? And that's the title of their book, written by two Southern Baptists. And one of the hallmarks of the Southern Baptist Convention has always been evangelism. That you are growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, you are drilled with it. It's all you can be basically think about and talk about. Oh, and the idea for a Southern Baptist some Southern Baptist preachers and teachers here saying that evangelism is on its deathbed, is it? He writes. Maybe it's due to a shift in focusing too much on social issues. Maybe we become too focused on secondary things rather than primary things. Some may argue that it's because the Western church has become too complacent because of its prosperity and comfort. Well, we've got to be careful generalizing the state of the church. We have to realize that there are some churches that take evangelism very seriously. However, the participation of many is not enough. We've got to come to the realization that God has called all Christ followers and all churches to be fully committed to evangelism. Now, how does that work out? I mean, I look at the idea of evangelism. You know, how do you express the gospel to somebody who you're walking with them periodically? I mean, there are many methods. I I would assume that most of us have heard of the Roman road, Okay, just walk someone through those five or six verses. All you have to do is read them kind of in order. And it's, the gospel is presented very simply. You don't have to have Billy Graham's ability to present the gospel. Someone says, "So what do you believe? There was one fellow was asked that. And uh, let's see, it was Bruce, Bruce Barber was his name. So, so what do you believe about all this? And he sat down and he said, well, I'll just write it out for you. Not telling him what he was writing, he wrote the Apostles' Creed. And handed it to the guy. And the guy went, whoa, that is such an incredible presentation. I understand. And he was looking at him going, you've never seen this before, have you? <laughs> you would never seen the Apostles' Creed. Because he says, well, what do you believe? Well, I believe. And he just, boom, put it all down. That's evangelism. It's that simple. Yes, it is a gift, and we are all called to express evangelism. Um, we also have to be careful not to make it the sole focus of all that is ever done, either, because that's always been the criticism of the big uh, events: is that you might have people making a lot of decisions, but then they're left to their own devices and there's no discipleship afterwards. And then they might have a conversion, they think, but they didn't really understand what they were doing or they were caught up in the moment and they didn't understand it. I remember when I uh, ran down the aisle to give my life to Christ, I was six years old. The fires of hell were looking at my, heel, at my heels because I had been listening to the sermon by R.G. Lee called Payday Someday that if you have ever seen that or ever heard about it, it's actually listed in one of the top best 100 sermons ever given in the 20th century. And so it's a very powerful message. When I got home, I can even picture in my mind right now sitting on my parents' bed and my dad sitting on one side and my mom sitting on the other and quizzing me do you know what you just did? They wanted to make sure I understood, truly understood, about repentance and sin and forgiveness and all of that. And then we prayed together and they were very confident that I understood, even at six years old. So evangelism, yeah. The gospel needs to be presented in some way, some form, in some fashion. We are not going to get through this whole list today. Well, that's good. Um, we'll do one more. We've got a few minutes. The next one is very, fairly easy. We get into the section called "The Power to Serve. I, I don't know about you, but I tend to think that this is where most people, where most people in the church fit. They're giving the, the gift to serve, in whatever form or fashion that is. Because you look at them, giving, mercy, serving, leadership, those are common in the sense that they are universally used within the confines of the church body. And without them, the church cannot operate as a functioning uh, entity. If the church was only full of pastors, And the church was only full of teachers. And the church was only full of healers. And the church was only full of discerners. Nothing would get done. Work has to happen. Things have to be put together. And you start looking at it, and you look at giving. I mean, to have that on the the gifts list, um, you know, it's kind of the... um, the challenge for all churches if they get into a giving campaign. Our church went through that for a while. People start getting tired of hearing the gimme, give gimme give some stuff, gimme some money appeals. And that's a challenge for any church. Always has been. But there are those who have the gift of giving And as I define it here, to share what you have with sacrifice and generosity. And then I added the sentences last night, beyond normal expectation. We can all have the gift of giving. We just, it's simply part of what we do and how we, um, how we operate. But then there are those that have the gift where it's not even a question for them. They just go way above and beyond. And they don't even have to have the appeal. They just do it because they've been given that gift beyond expectation. And it's the story of the widow in Mark 12, who gave all that she had, everything, with no expectation of having it replaced. But you know full well, she was taken care of somehow in some way. I just find that absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, why don't I? wrap this up, we'll come back to this next week, which means it'll give us time to (coughs) deal with the last page, which I just wish wasn't there. Um, And we can really dig into some of that. Again, with the whole idea that our purpose with this discussion is to help us create definitions. Because when we get into chapter 13, and especially chapter 14, if we don't have the definitions set, Our discussion will ramble and could uh, go the wrong or different directions. Let's pray. Lord thank you again for our time to explore your word, to explore the topic of these gifts of the Spirit that seem to have um, commanded our attention, our imaginations for the last few generations and so much has been incorrectly taught thank you for giving us the chance to really dig in and to create some definitions here to help our own understanding of your word in jesus name amen